this time to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Title of our message is uh, Giving Up Our Rights. And we're looking at verses 15 through 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There are a number of seats that are open. So there's a whole row right up here in the front if you need seats. There are some seats in the back. There are seats out in the hallway. So a number of seats that are still open if you're looking for a seat. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 15 through 18 of 1 Corinthians 9. Please read along with me. It says this. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me, what then is my reward, that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel." When we're talking about rights, rights are something that people talk about a lot nowadays. What are some rights that people talk about that you hear people in the world or in the workplace or at your schools? What, what, are, what are some rights that people say they have? Yes, Stephen. A right to bear arms, the Second Amendment. All right. Are you packing heat today? No, not today. Okay. All right. So whew, that makes me feel a little safer. Um, <laughs> So we do have the right to bear arms here in the United States. Um, yeah, the Constitution, uh, what's the First Amendment? Free speech, which includes religion, the press, right? Um, the Third Amendment? <laughs> That's where we lose it, isn't it? <laughs> of course, no quartering of soldiers, right? You can't demand that... Uh, you, you, you look after our British soldiers when we're invading you and that sort of thing, right? Um, uh, no unreasonable searches, due process, no self-incrimination, a speedy public trial, no excessive bail. There are other rights in the Constitution. Um, what, are, what, are, uh, what are some other rights that people talk about? A right to choose. Who said that? Okay, a right to choose. To choose what? Yeah, to choose what? Uh, okay, so uh, there is a right to choose. I mean, we think about uh, right to life, right? Um, my body, my choice, right? Unless it comes to masks, then it's, there is no choice, right? Um, there are, uh, yes, the vaccine. You have a right to get vaccinated uh, or... To not get okay, right, we won't get into that. Okay, um, I looked up the ACLU to see what rights that they said we have. Um, there are legal rights when you're pulled over. They're quite detailed about that. It was quite interesting. I looked it up just in case. Um, student rights on campus. There's voting rights. There are discrimination rights over sex, race, ethnicity. There are immigration rights, religious freedom. There are LGBTQ rights, there are protester rights, there are prisoner rights, and there are disability rights. Those are the categories they have. Do we have any God-given rights? Don't everybody raise your hand at once. Yes? Right to be called the child of God? Under the condition that you're called, so it's a... Oh yeah, so that is, is that a right? Is that that's a that would be a, a a gracious right, right? A right by grace, yeah. Um, so it's a God-given right. What's interesting is uh, the Declaration of Independence says what? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Do we, are those unalienable rights? Are those God-given rights? It's interesting. Uh, from, from one perspective, we would say that, you know, it would be anything that goes against God's law, anything that 
would break. Yeah, Rick's not going to say anything, are you? Oh, it's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So we have a right to life because the Old Testament has certain laws about against murder and so forth. Yeah? But in the New Testament, if you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, have you not laid down your life? Do you no longer have a life? What right do you have to that life? Uh, Reagan. How are we defining our right? Yeah, well... I think there are, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not pro-murder, I'm not, uh, so uh, I, think, I think I agree. Anytime you break the will of God, you are doing something that is wrong, you're violating someone else, so uh, when we have commandments uh, in Scripture, um, you, it, you, can, you can violate other people's God-given rights in one respect, but in another respect... When we give our lives to Christ, we are basically saying, whatever you will, thy will be done. My life is yours. I give it to you freely. I lay down my life. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And so when we think about these rights, we have these different perspectives on them. And I don't want to discount either one. Um, but what I want to point out is that as Christians, we have a different perspective on rights than anybody else. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians, it's important to realize that Paul has been talking a lot about giving up his rights. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, he says, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? I love that question. I think that's great. I think how many of us, when talking about um, uh, legal battles, and I, can you imagine, like, coming to, like, if I were a lawyer and coming to me some, for some advice, and the first question I says, well, why not rather be wronged? I mean, wouldn't that be really better for you to be get wronged than to? to gain justice now. And in, certainly when a believer who's in a, a Bible-teaching church has an argument or a legal battle or a legal issue with another believer who's in a Bible-believing church, it would, better, it would be better to be wronged than to go uh, you know, drag the, the conflict before the world's courts. That's what he's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, doesn't mean it's always wrong to go to court. Sometimes it's unavoidable, and sometimes there is a basis. But um, I think that's a good question for us to be asked, to ask ourselves, what, what, what would be the benefit if I'm wronged by this for the kingdom, for the gospel? First Corinthians seven twenty one, he says, Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who, call, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men, brethren. Let each one remain with God in that state in which he's called. And the principle in 1 Corinthians 7 is if you're a slave even. In Roman times, slavery, a quarter of the Roman population were slaves in, in, in the city of Rome. And so... Uh, he's saying that this is not um, uh, a revolt against slavery. If you can get out of your slave position, get out of it. But if you, um, if you cannot, remain as you are. God called you in that state. You are free in Christ, but he has a purpose for you there. And uh, chapter 8, uh, we saw in verses 9 through 13 where Paul talked about freedom that Christians have to eat meat sacrificed to idols, or to refrain from eating meat. And chapter 8, verse 9, he says, 
but take care of this, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. For some of us, that's a really extreme statement. I mean, oh my goodness. Is Paul actually saying that we should give up meat? Take away anything else, but not meat. Now, he carries on with this. He's been talking a lot about self-denial, and we, we reflected some about that last week towards the end. Self-denial, that is, for the sake of the gospel. But it seems like something bigger is going on here in chapter 9. I mentioned it last week. Does anybody remember what it is? That's right. There's somebody here who's trying to attack Paul. They're attacking Paul with this idea that he's not an apostle. He's not even a paid minister. And so there, there seems to be this defense that he's making of his apostolic authority and his rights in the gospel. We saw last week in verses 1 and 2 that he has apostolic authority. Take a look at chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? To others I'm not an apostle, but at least to you I, I, I am. Uh, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul's making very clear here, I am an apostle. I have all the rights and privileges of an apostle He identifies himself as apostle, and then he talks about his right to financial support, his his rights defended in verses 3 and 4. He has the right to individual support, the right to family support. He has a right to get married and take a wife and for his wife and kids to be supported by the ministry that he is in the gospel, and he has a right to get that support from the church, verse 4. And then he gives 10 illustrations We went through every one of them. Ten illustrations that illustrate proof that he has these rights, these rights to financial support. He gave the illustration of a soldier, of a vine dresser, of a shepherd. He gave four illustrations on a farm, one of an ox, one of the plowman, the thresher, and the sower, and he refers to the sower as himself. He talks about other preachers, and the other preachers, I think he's referring to uh, uh, Apollos, and Cephas, that is Peter, and others who are getting financial support. He has the right to financial support. Temple workers um, who would receive certain portions of the sacrifice. And then in verse 14, those who were sent out by Christ, by our Lord. That would be the 12 who are sent out in Matthew chapter 10, and then later the 72 who were sent out. And they, they had certain rights to be taken care of by those whom they preached. I mean, that's a phenomenal passage um, if you think about it. Just turn to um, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we have um, beginning in verse 5, uh, he's sending out the 12 to the lost sheep of Israel. This is the first time that Jesus sends out the disciples on an evangelistic mission. These are missionaries. These are sent out ones. Um, verse, 12, verse 5 of, of Matthew chapter 5, he says, These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the, any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. The worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave at that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that city, that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for that land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So uh, I want to skip over to Matthew 25. I just want to point something out in the same, same book. Matthew chapter 25, we have the judgment And he says in, um, 
Um, I'll start in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I, I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they said to themselves, and they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it uh, to me, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Notice that... um, uh, in verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you, did, that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Sometimes today we think of the least of these, and who are the least of these? And you, generically, people say, well, the least of these are the poorest of the poor in the world. But there's a case to be made that the least of these are not the poorest of the poor. He's not the world. The context here is clear that the least of these are believers, But then there's a question about salvation because those who do not reach out to the least of these end up going to hell. So how is it that we take care of the least of these? And uh, within the context of Matthew, Jesus has sent out his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel to go into towns. You can imagine a guy coming into your town with no resources and saying and preaching, the Messiah is here. It is Jesus of Nazareth. And those who believe and welcome them into his home and give him food to eat and help him when he's sick and visit him in prison, who else in Matthew's readers' minds would need those things but those who had been sent out and were suffering? The least of these are those who have been sent out by by, um, our Lord. And the reason you're saved is not because you've done those things. It's that it's a testimony that you've believed. Salvation is always through faith. And so um, when you think about, I mean, if, if, if somebody who's a false teacher comes to your town and says, hey, uh, Joseph Smith is the Messiah, and they're going to, they're gonna, can I stay at your home? You're going to say, no, you can't stay at my home. You, you just go, get out of here, be gone. God bless you. Uh, you know, you would witness to them, but you, you wouldn't take them in because you would be associated with their message. And those who take in those who are, preaching the gospel, are associated with that message. They believe in that message. There's also something at the end of Matthew chapter 10, which um, um, uh, has a slight reference to least of these or little ones. He says in, in verse 42, Matthew chapter 10, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water and drink, surely I, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So there's something to be said here for those who went out. And what Paul is saying in chapter 9 is even the Lord sent out disciples and they had a right to be taken care of by the people that they visited. They came to a town with nothing. They preached, and whether they were thrown in prison or whether they needed a place to stay or needed food or were sick, or, or you know, they, they had a right to be taken care of by those who benefited from the message. Don't I have that right? And so he has all these arguments for his rights. And then he says that he's not going to take those rights. And that's why I think that that after 10 illustrations and half a chapter arguing for his rights, and then just to say he's not going to have them, I think that people were saying, you don't need to listen to Paul. Uh, Paul is just... Uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not a real, real apostle. There are only 12 apostles. How is the 13th apostle an apostle? Paul, uh, you know, and so he argues for these rights. But what we find in verses 15 through 18 of 1 Corinthians 9 are three details about Paul's decision to give up certain rights that should give you a greater sense of purpose in the gospel ministry. I think that it's easy for us to look at Paul and hear about his rights, but how do we give up our rights How do we actually apply this to ourselves? And it's all about the gospel ministry. And so three details, and I'll just give them to you from the get-go here. There's Paul's correction, 
Paul's call and Paul's comfort. Those are the details we're looking at now. So Paul's correction. First of all, verse 15. Take a look at verse 15. He corrects them. Um, But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. So this is not a trick question. What are these things? His? His rights, the rights he's been arguing for. I have all these rights, but I've used none of them. I haven't taken money from those who I've preached to. And I'm not writing you, he says, so that you will give me money. This is not about me getting a raise. This is not about me gaining financially. I'm not asking for this. That's not a part of this. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. It's important to understand what he means by boasting here. The word boast um, is a word that Paul uses in the New Testament. Almost exclusively, it's a word that Paul uses. And most of the time, it's used in a negative sense. We think of, and we think of boasting as something that is wrong, it's prideful, it's arrogant, because most often, boasting is something that we do about ourselves. We have the spotlight on ourselves. And me, and what about me? And, you know, and we're, we're, we're trying to show people how great we are. But it's not always used in a negative sense. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, very beginning of this book, verse 31. Paul quotes Jeremiah 9.24, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast in someone, boast in Jesus Christ. Boast in what God has done and accomplished through his son. Boast in the gospel. Romans 15.17, he says, therefore in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And the idea of boasting here is one of glorying. It's finding contentment or satisfaction. It's, I I can boast about this. I can boast about Christ. I'm not boasting about myself. I'm boasting about what he has done. And that's what boasting, that's the glorying, that's what you are to glory in. Paul boasted of was, was the gospel. And when he taught people, he didn't teach to according to his own wisdom. He's not saying, this is what I know and this is who I am but he's glorying in God's wisdom, what God has done. And that's what he deals with a lot in those opening chapters. Verse 15, again, in 1 Corinthians 9, it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void or make my boast an empty one. It's actually a very awkward statement here. It's almost like he had this idea, it would be better for me to die, and then he doesn't quite finish it. It's almost he's saying, no one shall nullify my boast. That's a literal translation. It would be better for me to die or, and then it's almost like he starts over. No one shall nullify my boast. It's often translated as that, that any man could make my boast an empty one or a null one. Um, Basically, what he's saying is that he gets back to this idea. There were obviously those who were preaching for financial gain. Peter had referred to them as those who preach for sordid gain. Just like today, there are people who are out there to get rich. There are people who are using the gospel to gain financially. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It is a different gospel. It is not the gospel that the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and and have all these material blessings today. The Bible teaches that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. He may choose to bless you materially today, but that is not a right, and that also can be a hindrance, and it's something that you may have to give up. And this is part of Paul's um, uh, argument here. He's not saying you have to give it up. He's saying that we are about the gospel. We're not here to make money. And one of the places that's ironic that that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel sells so freely is in poor countries. You go to Africa, and man, prosperity sells. But the only ones getting rich off of it are the ones who are selling it. It's sad. It's horrific. It should be cursed, according to Galatians chapter 1. It's a different gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 
Paul reminds the Thessalonians that it was always his pattern that whenever he went to a new place that had never heard the gospel, he did not take money from them. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And so Paul did not want to take money from those he was preaching the gospel to. Why? Yes? He didn't want them to say, what, didn't he have a right to the money? So what's wrong? Is it wrong for people to preach and receive money for preaching, compensation? Is it, is it, I mean, is it, we talked about last week how it's wrong when you have a community of people where somebody is pouring out and feeding them spiritually and they're unwilling to take care of him physically. So it wasn't that people were unwilling to take care of him. Why, did, why was Paul so determined not to take money? Yes, because it, would, it, it could be a stumbling block. Verse 12 helps give us our answer. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, it says, if others share the, this right over you, do we not more? So these are the others, probably Apollos and Cephas and others. that The, the church was supporting people financially. And he says, you know, we helped start this church. Don't we have the right even more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel. He wanted to make the gospel free. It's a free gospel, but he wanted to make sure that nobody delayed in coming to faith in Christ thinking, is this guy just after my money? There were false teachers who would travel from town to town and swindle people out of money. It's a, it's, a, it's a tale that has happened throughout history. And he wanted to take away that hindrance. And so that's his correction. His correction in verse 15 is actually, this is not about money for me. I have these rights, but don't get me wrong. I don't want to use them. And then we move on to verses 16 and 17. He talks about his calling. He talks about his calling Verse 16, actually, we see, we see uh, I want to point out, uh, first of all, one word in verse 16 and then an idea in verse 17. The word in, in verse 16 is compulsion, and the word in verse 17 is an idea there. It's conscription. So his calling was all about compulsion and conscription. Verse 16 the compulsion. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under no compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I want to point out here, he doesn't say I'm compelled to preach. He says I have a compulsion. And I think there's a distinction. It's not like he's this guy who has this itch to preach, where he's just like, can't wait to do it. Like, I want to be, I want to preach. He's preaching, but I want to preach. That's not like, it's not like that at all. He can't imagine not preaching. He has a, a compulsion because of the message, the gospel. Paul's, this wasn't about Paul at all. He tried to remove himself every time he preached. This was the message of Jesus Christ, the message that every one of us deserves death. Talk about rights, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. I, I often take people to that verse. I say, what are wages? What does this mean? And, and they're like, uh, and I say, well, what are wages? So wages are what you get you know, at the end of the work week. That's right. Wages are what you deserve. If you sin, what you deserve is death. Ezekiel says the soul of him who sins must die. The Bible teaches, like it or not, that anyone who sins, and by the way, we're all born sinners, we don't sin. Uh, we, we don't become a sinner the first time we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. I never had to teach my kids how to sin. It came naturally to them. They're natural born sinners. And they get better at it over time. I don't have to say to them, um, okay, that was a pretty good lie. But next time when you say you didn't eat the cake, try and wipe some of the crumbs away from your mouth so that, it, you know, it'll, next time it'll be more believable. 
They get it. They know it. It's, it's like a duck to water. It's for all of us. It's our nature. We're sinners. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, we all deserve to die. You want to know about your rights? We have a right to die. Justice would be that none of us were here today. The fact that you woke up this morning is a gift from God. It's a day of grace. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, today is a gift from God. You have another day. Another day. This, the fact that God allowed Adam and Eve to live, to have children, that they would have children, that they would have children, it's just a testimony to his grace. We are dying people, and we could die at any moment. And we say things from a human perspective. Some people, we say, oh, they, they die too, too early, you know. My grandfather used to always say, people say, why do you get so old? He says, well, only the good die young, you know. And, but it's, it's, it's not really true, is it? Because no one is good. In fact, the only one who is good is who? Christ. It's God alone. Christ never sinned. Therefore, he never had to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified as our substitute. He took our place on the cross so that those who would repent and turn and trust in his righteousness, that your sin would be taken out of your account, according to Romans chapter 4, and placed into Christ's account where he paid for it in full on the cross, and there is now therefore no condemnation for you. You will never be condemned for those sins. All the sins you, you committed in the past, all those sins that are presently in your life, those sins which you have yet to commit, they've all been forgiven if you've repented and trusted in Christ's righteousness. And his righteousness has been taken out of his account, according to Romans chapter 4, and placed into your account so that when God looks at you, he says, another life just like my son's. Clean, pure, righteous, holy, sanctified. He sees you from his perspective as holy, That's the good news. That's the gospel. And if you have not yet repented and trusted in Christ's righteousness, if you're trying to trust in your own righteousness, there is no hope for you. You are condemned already. You have not believed on the Son. So we must trust in the Son, give our lives to the Lord, repent of our sin, and turn and follow him. That is the gospel. That is what Paul preached. And he was called to do that. If you, if you think about the way he was called, let me, just, let me just stop there before we get to his conscription, which is verse 17. Let me ask this. Is there anyone here who is called to preach the gospel full-time? I'm talking about vocational. I'm talking about you feel like you have a calling by God to preach the gospel. Is there anyone here besides me? Because I believe there is a calling. Is there anyone else? Full, all the way up. All the way up. Okay, if you have a calling to preach the gospel, then how do you know you have that calling? We only had a few people raise their hands. There's a confirmation. Could be a confirmation. Yeah. So we talk about, when we talk about the calling of God, we talk about the fact that, well, for one, there should be a desire. I mean, God's not, it's not like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm going to have to be a preacher, you know? Uh, You know, you're five years old, and, oh, you would be a good preacher someday, you know? I mean, you you can't, I mean, you can say that, you can encourage people. I remember um, when our kids were young, uh, we were missionaries, you know, in Africa. We came back on furlough, and we came uh, and put our kids in the nursery here. It was always a new experience, a fun experience for us. When one of our kids was... About three, I think, um, he, uh, uh, we picked him up from the, there's a line of people. You have to go in through a line. I think it's still probably that way, and you're waiting, and he sees us, and he's not coming, and I get up to the front of the line, and people are behind me, and he, he's acting like he doesn't see me. And so I call his name, and he, go, he yells out, stupid. Yeah. And the lady behind me, like a typical Grace Church lady, she's like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> You know, and um, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, um, I wish I would have been quicker because later I thought I could have said, "Oh, honey, don't speak Chichewa here. It sounds like a bad word in English." You know, be the missionary, and you know that could be a different word, but I, that would have 
So um, I said, I said, oh, all right, come, we're going to go talk about this. And, you know, talk in the most figurative sense, sort of in the allegorical sense, right? So I pick him up, he comes, and we go pick up his brother, all right? His older brother. Uh, and um, uh, and, uh, and so uh, I only have two, two sons. Uh, anyway, so uh, we go to his class, and the teacher says, I need to talk to you about your son. And I'm like, great. <laughs> and she says, he prayed the sweetest prayer. And I think he's going to be a pastor. I said, no, lady, you got it wrong. This one's going to be the pastor. He's got all the gifting and aptitude for it. I've seen it. So um, anyway, I took them home. I don't know. I don't know if either of them will, but they should have a desire. It's not as though you're going to, you know, like say, I have no desire. Because in 1 Timothy 3, 2, Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 3, 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. In other words, there should be this, this um, desire. Aspiration is kind of a funny word because we think of it as making yourself grand. It's not that. He's basically coming at this actually from the opposite direction. He's saying, don't feel bad about your desire to serve in any capacity in the church. And I think that everybody, every, everybody should look at the qualifications for an elder and say, I want to live my life like that. And, and every man should say, Lord, if you want me to serve there, I want to serve there. But there are certain people who say, well, I'm not qualified to, or I have no desire to. That's okay. But if you have a desire to do it, it's okay as well. Um, he should also have an ability to teach. Uh, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, hospitable, able to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2. Not only ability to teach, but he must have a gifting. If he's going to be a, um, a full-time preacher or pastor, he should have a gift of preaching. And that's hard because how do we measure that gift? And we're going to get into this some when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But just think about this. It is a spiritual gift. This is not a natural gift. It is not a natural gift of teaching. Many preachers have a natural gift of preaching, but that's not what, what, what we talk about when we talk about spiritual gifts. Uh, like in Romans 12, 7, if it's in service, in his serving, or he teaches in his teaching. If it's a spiritual gift, it can only be measured spiritually. One of the most difficult confrontations I ever had was when I was in my first pastorate. I'd been pastoring for more than four years. And one of the men who hired me came to me privately and says, I have a question for you. I said, what is it? He says, do you think you have the gift of teaching? And I'm like, excuse me? He says, yeah, I'm just wondering. It's just a question. Do you, he said that three times. Uh, 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 I, do, you ha- do you think you have the gift of teaching? It's just a question. I'm like, just a question? That's like saying this is just a knife, and you just put it in my heart and <laughs> turned it. And I, I, I said to him, I said to him, I honestly don't know how to answer that question. I really don't. But I, I, I will think about it. I'll pray about it. I'll, I'll read about it. I'll come back to you. So about a week later, I got back to him. I had talked about it with a friend of mine. I had... I had and I, and I said to him, I said, you know, um, I said, you know, you, you've asked this question. You hired me to be here. You've been in this church week in and week out for four years. So I, I, I want to ask you a question. Have you grown spiritually since you've been in this church, or have you, have you been stagnant? He said, no, I've grown spiritually. I said, well, the primary means that I've tried to help you in assisting you to grow spiritually is through the preaching of the word. And so if those are the means that I'm trying to use and you are growing spiritually, then it seems to me like I have the gift of preaching because spiritually you are growing. I can't measure it. It's not my ability. But then I said to him, I think what you're asking me, and I'm not sure I said it this clearly, but in reflection on it, I think what he's saying is I was boring. And every preacher has seasons of their, of their time as, as preacher where they wrestle with the content and connection. And so sometimes preachers with great connection have no content. And sometimes preachers with great content have very little connection. 
and preachers go through seasons. And so if somebody comes to, to, to you who are called to be preachers and asks about your ability to preach or whatever, thank them because it's a good reminder for you. People aren't usually going to be honest with you. They're, you know, so, so you need to continue to work on that. And, and for some of you, it's going up with fewer notes. For some of you, it's maybe going up with more notes or more preparation. What, whatever it is, you, you want to be as clear as possible. And people shouldn't have to choose between to learn. Um, so there's a, but there is a calling. I believe that calling has a desire. It has an ability. It has a gifting. And it has an affirmation. And I think that, you know, Paul told Titus, for example, to appoint elders. And so I think that there's this idea of, of uh, other people affirming that you have that call. When we look at um, his conscription, verse 17, take a look at this. This is also part of his calling. He says, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Paul's basically saying here is, he says, hey, if I volunteered to be a pastor, um, that would be, or an apostle, that would be, then, then I, could, I, I could, if I was doing this on my own, I said, hey, I think I want to be a pastor. Then that, I could have a reward in that, that I chose to do that. But he says, I didn't choose. It's like, it's like you get a letter in the mail, dear so-and-so, you have just been drafted into the U.S. Army, congratulations. And now you're off in Vietnam or where, where, wherever they're going to put you. Probably not Vietnam, but, you know, uh, you're like, wait a minute, what? I, I didn't choose to do this. That's how he talks about his call. And he says um, that... Uh, if against my will, I have a stewardship. In other words, I have a responsibility. And so Paul says, there's no reward in that. I'm just doing what, I am, what I'm supposed to do. And we find this in other places too. In Colossians 1.23, Paul wrote, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I want to point out that he talks about he was made a minister of the gospel. It's a passive act for him. He didn't make himself. He was made a minister. Uh, it says the same thing in verse 25 of Colossians 1. Of this church, I was made a minister. Remember in Acts chapter 9, Paul was going to persecute Christians in, Dam- in Damascus, and the Lord appeared to him on the road, to Damascus and blinded him. And then he went and told a man named Ananias to go and, uh, and, and, and help him. And Ananias wasn't too excited to do that because he had heard of Paul. So this was kind of a difficult thing for Ananias to do. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before all people of Israel. And so Paul says, the end of verse 17, of back in 1 Corinthians 9, I have this stewardship. It's been thrust upon me. I have to preach the gospel. And woe is me if I do not. This is, this is my calling. Paul had a specific calling. He speaks about it thoroughly. We've seen Paul's correction. He doesn't want them to give them money. We've seen his calling. He has an obligation to do what he does. Therefore, he can't boast in it because he's just doing what he's been told to do. So therefore, what can he glory in? What can he boast in? What is his boast? And this is kind of a weird thing, because we get to verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? His reward is going to be the same thing as his boast. What is it? That when I preach the gospel, I might offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, Paul's comfort... We've seen his correction, his call. The third detail we find is his comfort in verse 18. His reward, his boast, is that though he could not glory in preaching, it's something he had to do. He was called to do it. He was under compulsion to do it. He was conscripted to do it. His reward, essentially, is that he could receive no reward for his reward. His payment was that he could go without pay. His freedom is that he could take the gospel, which is free, and make sure that everyone understood it was free, even though he had the right to be paid for it. He was going to forego that right so that there would be no delay 
so that more people would come more quickly to faith in the gospel so that somehow he could give up his freedom and glory in that and, and, and say, this is, this is something I can do. His joy was to serve and become a slave to everyone. Take a look at verse 19, which we'll get into next week. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. And so, in a sense, Paul is saying, uh, and there's also a difficult phrase here. He says, so as to not make full use of my right. I think it would be better said, I don't want to misuse or abuse the authority that is given to me by God and the right that I have to receive pay. I don't want anybody to ever misinterpret that. I think it is legitimate. I do have that right. Others have that right. But I don't want to abuse it anyway. I want to stay as far away as possible from any appearance of that. And it's my joy. It's my delight to do that because now I get to serve him more because Paul is so overwhelmed with the beauty of the gospel that he wants to participate in it. And he can't do that voluntarily because he was drafted. So what he can do, he can serve without pay. And that brings him joy because it's his choice. He does get to choose something. I'm not going to take this. I'm going to give up my right. And that's humbling for us because we're like, we ask the questions, well, what rights do I have? And Paul's like, what rights can I give up? Because the gospel is so much better than anything I could ever do or come up with. How can I participate in this voluntarily? It's really, really, really sweet. What'd you say? That wasn't boring. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, we'll, we'll get into next week, verses 19 and following, and we'll look more at, at giving up rights so that others may see Christ's work more clearly. Let me just close. We've got five minutes. You can ask questions or not, but let me, let me ask this. What are some ways you think you can make the gospel clearer Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Rights and privileges might be two sides of the same coin. Uh, for a Christian, I mean, Paul in no way is saying that pastors should not receive money for what they're doing. Quite the contrary, he just spent the first 14 verses arguing for that. Um, But he says, though it's my right to receive that, it's my privilege to not receive it. And I choose not not to receive it because it's it's something that I can do. It's his desire. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, when we have freedoms that are given to us, and that's an interesting point because we do, I don't want to discount this. In America, we enjoy certain freedoms. In, in many ways, there's a false sense of security here in America that we all enjoy. Um, people used to ask me, is, you know, we want to come to Africa, but is it safe? You know? And, and my standard answer is, well, um, the safest place you can be is following Jesus Christ. And God is just as sovereign in Africa as he is here in America. You could stay home, but don't think you're safe. You know, your days are numbered. The Lord knows the days of them. I don't know the days of them. Just make sure you're doing something worth dying for. And so uh, live your life for Christ. I think that I think that when it comes down to it and we think about what Paul's arguing for is that we don't struggle with this. We tend to think, do I have to share the gospel? 
don't I have the right to be quiet now or to back away? And I think it's, um, there's a book called Evangelism of the Sovereignty of God, and in it, um, there's a quote which says, uh, it's J.I. Packer who wrote the book, but he quotes someone else saying, when you have the, the opportunity to choose the topic of conversation, choose the topic of topics, Jesus Christ. And what he says there is you have to earn the right to choose the topic of conversation. You can do more harm than good by just forcing the gospel on people or being awkward about it. And what I say repeatedly is, 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 is earning that right takes time. It may happen in five minutes with a complete stranger you meet uh, on an airplane or on a bus or, or somewhere in the bank. It could be anywhere. It could take five days to bring up that. It could take five weeks. It could take months. But if there's someone in your life and it's taken years, you're probably, you're probably not really uh, being as aggressive as you should be. I, I think that's the challenge for us. I think that um, when we think about rights, it's more of like um, we, we're left with this, this question of what do I have to do? And that's why this is so encouraging because Paul is like, from it's such a crazy argument. I have these rights. Here's my support of it. Here are all the illustrations of it, but I'm not going to use them. I'm, I can't boast in anything, but I can boast in giving up my rights. I can glory in that because that allows me to participate. And I think what drives it and what needs to drive us is the wonder of the gospel. And I think sometimes we forget about that. And we think about self-preservation and we think about our own um, uncomfortableness. And Paul's like, I want to be uncomfortable. I, suffering is okay. One final quote. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh to do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church, I was made a minister. Paul found joy in doing what Christ would be doing if he was here. And that should be an encouragement to us. I don't want you to walk away feeling beat up, although we should feel beat up sometimes. But we should also rejoice in the message. The message is that beautiful. So be encouraged. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together in your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to look at your word, the fact that you have revealed yourself and that this word has been preserved. And there are certain rights and freedoms that we enjoy in this, in this country, which isn't wrong, which we can thank you for. There are many places on earth where we, they can't do what we're doing here freely. And so we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that we would walk out of here encouraged to be lights and wherever possible, giving up rights, living so differently than the world that they look at us and they say, what is different about you? And we're able to tell them, it's Jesus. It's this message. It's his work that humbles us so much and that we glory in. We give you all the praise and glory for all that's accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.